the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, Consider tossing us a dollar a month at our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you can't do that, leaving us a nice review on iTunes would be just as amazing. We love to get those. We'll even shout you out on the next week's episode. To that end, I just want to, I guess, particularly speak to our patrons and just apologize for like not putting out content for the last month or so. You know, my father passed away recently, so there was a lot on my plate, but I'm glad to be back with Taylor and our wonderful guests. And we'll be back on our normal production schedule soon. So just hang in there with us. But I uh, just wanted to, you know, at least apologize to patrons specifically and let you know that we're back in the saddle and we're committed to putting out amazing content for y'all. And I really appreciate it. So all Welcome that said, back, Coop. I love you. <laughs> Welcome back. All that said, Taylor and I are very proud to bring our guest for this week's episode, Catherine Everett, a PhD candidate at the European Graduate School. She's currently completing her dissertation on Hegel and the dialectics of space and is joining us for a look at the discourse of voluntary servitude by Etienne de la Boiti. <laughs> I call him Boiti. You can call him whatever. I'm you probably going to try five or six different pronunciations before That's the episode fine. is over. Uh, or fine. maybe just an entire, I'll say he, <laughs> or something like the author, uh, rather. But we're also taking a look at Montaigne's essay on friendship. They were actually friends, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they but... explored each other's bodies, as, <laughs> as they say. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Catherine, we'd like to start out by having our guest maybe talk about maybe an anecdote, a thinker, maybe a moment, something that would lead to your kind of interest in philosophy and passion towards philosophy. We call it the philosophical origin story. So if you have something like a singular moment or it doesn't necessarily have to be singular, but if you get the gist of my question, yeah, feel free to take that and, and run with that and say whatever you'd like. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here to talk about La Boissie, as, as I say its name, and Montaigne as well. But for my origin story, I really hope this is the most difficult question I'm asked today. <laughs> Gosh, when I thought about this question, I thought about, how, did you see the documentary on Derrida? You know, it's called Derrida I, I, in the early 2000s. And I, I, I think yeah, I've seen this. It's been years. It's been years, but yes. So what I liked about this documentary is that they, in a very Derridian style, they like really try to not tell his origin story, right? Like there isn't this right for him right like oh he was born in algeria to jewish family and so that's why he has this unique perspective and so they don't like point in on any one particular thing so that's my like cheeky answer to this right like oh how could i point to an origin but to properly 
answer the question. I'm certainly like a hysteric and like a <laughs> sense. And so I think from a young age, I've always been challenging authority, you know, getting into fights with my teachers. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, so many stories like this. And it actually struck me recently. I was in a class with Alenka and she was talking about the hysteric and Alenka was saying, the hysteric says, that's not it. That's not it. That's never it. And I went, right. oh, God. And I just say to Alenka after class, I was like, Alenka, how do I know I'm a good hysteric? My name is Catherine Everett. Catherine <laughs> never it. <laughs> right. There you go. That's good. I think this sort of uh, like inclination to always ask like who's in charge, who's really pulling the strings here, led me to become more interested in, in critical thought, critical theory. But really, when I was uh, in high school, I joined the debate team. <laughs> okay, but, yeah, this seems yeah. to be a common refrain. It really is. You know, a lot of us got in like really deep into philosophy or into politics, and at that age, even though we were learning such basics right like mm. a few lines on like who Nietzsche was you know you know you learn the name Kant and that's about it and you think you're so smart right you're like oh I know so much about philosophy but nonetheless it did open up some doors and you know show me some horizons and that was when I first started watching videos of Zizek right and I would say that was really when I began my philosophy journey so this is a a super villain origin story. Then your superpower is is debate, bro. Um. Yeah, <laughs> completely, completely. Yeah, no, I definitely was like hyper competitive in the debate world. You know, <laughs> so many times I would get out of a round, and the the guy who I was debating would say, "You're a lot smarter than you look." <laughs> ah, Jesus! It's like I have my superpower, indeed. <laughs> definitely identify with the position of the hysteric in this regard. I think. Thinking about this in terms of my relationship to my father in particular, I mean, it's like, I want the real authority, the real dad. Exactly. You're not my yeah. real dad. <laughs> exactly. Are you the real dad? Who's really in charge here? And exactly. This we're dealing with today, this uh, discourse on voluntary servitude, is the ultimate hysterics text, if there ever was one. And I think that's also why I enjoy reading it so much. I love the origin story about Catherine Neverett. I think that's wonderful and i will have to call out taylor a little bit i'm we're reading this piece and it has an introduction from murray rothbard and i'm like jesus christ what the fuck am i i had never <laughs> heard of this fuck guy. Has taylor dragged me into that i never has heard an of introduction guy. by murray rothbard and hey, i think this colored my entire reading of the text it, you want to know what i was pissed off about was What's all that? was my hard copy had all of these misprints. So <laughs> oh man, I know that's if you true. look at the Nadir of uh... if you look at the actual like very first page on the left hand side where it's got the uh it says reprinted in <laughs> in whatever time and then it says under the license of create commons instead of creative <laughs> comments and i was i and i almost took a screenshot of that and made That's some funny. joke but then i thought you know coop's gonna call me out for being a, a grammar nazi he, so he, without hesitation always will point out my hey my that's why i'm a translator i get full-on fascist when i see a typo i gotta fix it i'm it's, just it's, moving it's, quickly like i gotta get the the jewy i gotta get the jewy yeah comments. right There's no time for, i gotta 
we're living hand to mouth as far as jouissance is concerned here. When a text has a typo, I think I could fix her. You know, that's my <laughs> that's how I think about it. So you want to talk about even hysteric or obsessional. You know, we we will talk about like uh, our own di- self diagnoses. I'm obsessional, I guess. I get like I get like I gotta fix it. So um, all right. But even like in this like <laughs> what's his name, Marie Rothbard? Gosh, I don't even know. Murray Rothbard. What kind of name is that? Right. Sounds like a child child actor. Right. right. Mur- Murray S. Rothbard or something like that. But even in this like libertarian tradition, of course, the text is like so bootleg <laughs> that you have, right? There's been no check or balance on it in any sense, right? It's just like, oh, just for the commons. If you guys got the same PDF that I have the hard copy of, which I lost, I just threw it away, I guess. I said, fuck this. There's typos throughout where, for example, like when they want to use the quotation marks, it's like parentheses and there's just <laughs> all kinds of shit. And by the way, it was printed in text. It was reprint. Oh my God. I, it was reprinted. Institute. Jesus Christ. It was reprint, reprinted, if I'm saying this correctly, in Texas. So I'm going to blame the Texans on this coop. I'm I gonna... missed that this was by from the Von Mises Institute. Jesus Christ, dude. So you know, you know, this, these people. Oh, yeah, dude. You're talking about <laughs> <laughs> like the fucking Uber and cap. There's, the there's Von a, Mises, like that's the whole Ron Paul. Did you read his intro? No, fuck no. Okay, so in the intro, at a certain point, he like defends Bweddy, mm-hmm. Sweaty Bweddy against, you know, he defends him against being an anarchist. And I was like, oh my God, Coop's gonna fucking blow a gasket. So, <laughs> hey, I'm glad you just skipped that shit. The whole thing reeks of liberal anarchism a little bit to me. Well, it's not, I, I think mean, we should I, let Catherine talk. Apparently, she's, she's it's a, not even anarchism. But uh, yes, I'm sorry, Catherine. We're uh, no, it's all good. we miss it's each other. Good. I think. Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting text in this way, right? That it both has this, uh, you know, 20th century libertarians picked it up, but in France, it's known as like this leftist text, and so uh, there's this interesting question. And yeah, you read it, and there are certainly moments of like hardcore libertarian libertarianism that you get in it but then there's also these really nice anarchist moments as well and so it's like this uh, common bed that the two are sharing this really like uncomfortable bedfellow it's like oh wait we both hate illegitimate authority wait a minute but we're in the same bed together right 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 and Um, i think that's so funny because the opposite of that would be like you know when i when i was thinking about this i thought well then who you know, is this just a universal then? Does everybody, would everyone be on board with this? Like, yeah, of course, we all just hate illegitimate authority. And yet the text opens with this quote from Odysseus saying, no, we need a king, right? We need someone to be in charge. And it immediately kind of criticizes it too, right? So it's, it's a very paradoxical text to a certain extent. It's good that way. And there was a moment because of you, Catherine, where I wrote like, s1 you know at a certain <laughs> point where i was thinking of yes. like where's the master signifier you know mm. being reconfigured here like where is uh you know i, I already made the joke to you but coop knows this we've said this in a few episodes where um you know obviously the famous lacan phrase after the 68 upheavals let's call it because it's mm-hmm. not even really a revolution where lacan's like you want new masters you're going to get them and i kept thinking that when i was reading this text Specifically because of your like uh, input. So I, I give you credit. And maybe Coop needed that. It was like, hey, read this as though it's Lacan speaking. Right. Maybe maybe he would have like 
had a different outlook. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because you can really get both in that sense. And, you know, I have a, like my, my background before I started my PhD in philosophy was in political science and European modern history. And I never came across this text. Really? <laughs> it's its own weird question, right? Like, why is this so sidelined? And even in France today, it's really not like a well-known text. I mean, people know La Boisie is the friend of Montaigne. Right. Uh, and it was in a class with Milad and Delar that I first read this text. And, and so, of course, Milad's point, like you were just saying, Milad really instrumentalized this text to talk about the master as an S1, right, as an empty signifier, as a filtering point for authority. And one thing that Milad has said so frequently mostly in regard to the 16th century and to the late 19th century, is he calls these different historical epochs a backstage of history or a peek behind the curtains. And I've always loved this sort of metaphor that he's deployed, right? Like, how are we pulling back the curtains? What are we looking at? And why at these two different moments? And this text is so interesting for that reason. I think that this is why it's a true hysterics text is that the curtains have been pulled back and the voice is like, wait, what's going on here? What is power? And you see that in so many different texts in the 16th century, right? There's Martin Luther, right? Nightingale Theses, there's Machiavelli as well, the Prince, these different peaks behind the curtain. And even, I mean, to sort of go on a bit, right? With Luther, it's interesting because both him and the Boisie have the same trajectory in terms of writing these really revolutionary texts and then going back and doubling down on conservatism during the peasant uprising in Germany, writes this text called Against the Thieving Murderous Hordes of Peasants, which just says, how dare you peasants not know your place? A couple of things. One thing is interesting is you do bring up about how Boidy, you know, turns towards conservatism. You know, supposedly, you know, Montaigne wants to say he wrote this text when he was 18 or 16, which is disputed probably wrote this while he was at university in his early 20s before he got his law degree but you know one of the things that what he does as he becomes a magistrate later is he argues for suppressing the protestant huguenot uprisings and this forced you know conversion to catholicism if we want to talk about his relation to luther it's kind of interesting right like the you have the great Protestant Reformation from from Luther, but you also have like the pushback from Boedi. In that sense, too, there's an interesting parallel, although in different directions. And I thought that was that was that was kind of interesting. I'm probably descended from French Huguenots, so that's very interesting as well. You're like you're from Norman French. It was like instead of cherry, it was de cherry or something. Oh, that's right. Okay. Before de they moved to England and it was anglicized to cherry. So I'm the kin of Adam. If you want to talk about my name, we're talking about names here. You know, Catherine Neverett. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm the kin of Adam. So I am the OG Taylor. You have the true origin story. The <laughs> there you go. Exactly. I'm going to give this to you, Catherine. I just want to say I'm so jealous of all of the people you've gotten to like interact with at the EGS. Oh, I'm just going to say. So I'm so lucky, honestly, yeah, you know, endlessly privileged to be able to say like, yeah, Mulholland was the one that introduced this text. Right. And I told this joke to Alenka, right? I mean, like, it's uh, I'm incredibly lucky. I guess we were talking about Lavoisi's like conservative 
life that he really led, right? I mean, he was a parliamentarian in Bordeaux. He was a judge. He was born to an aristocratic family. And Montaigne, like we talked about after the Boissy's death, has to defend the Boissy because this is when the text comes out. It's after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, in which happens in 1572. And then this text is printed in 1574, right? First anonymous right. and then under his name. And I think this is so interesting because it's it has a really nice parallel with Luther here as well, that the text grew its own legs and walked around despite the intentions of the author, right? That there was something they couldn't control about like the revolutionary fervor that they had created. This right. is like really the heart of the text that the symbolic is semi-autonomous, right? Both in the sense of like, there is a master that we give him power, but that doesn't seem totally the whole answer to this text, right? It's not just that I willingly submit, I voluntarily am the servant, right? Like what the voice is really getting at is that there's something more to it than that. But likewise with this text, I mean, the symbolic has its own legs and walks around, right? We don't mm. ever come into this world speaking our own language, right? We speak the language of, of the other. And so even with this text, he couldn't control it and nor could Montaigne. And you know, interestingly, even and the text keeps reappearing in different time periods. In 1852, with the crowning of Napoleon, it keeps cropping up at these different revolutionary moments, despite the what, French Revolution, too, right? Yeah, the French Revolution as well. Yeah, precisely. Despite what Lavoisi wanted, right? Because he really was like, no, we should. We, he really likes France. He really thinks that France is doing a great thing, and he doesn't want to instigate a revolution in France itself. It does seem that Montaigne was a little annoyed when it was published after Boiti's death. I mean, he died when he was 32. Talk about his conservatism as an old man. We're talking about, you know, a decade. Uh, but Montaigne seemed to be pretty annoyed. And I think that's why he tries to give the date of the pub, of the um, authorship back to when Boiti was 18, 16, to say like, no, my dude was a, was a true high, hardcore conservative. It's kind of interesting to think, you know, Montaigne was trying to, in a certain way, like stick up for his friend at a time when he would have been disparaged for a more progressive outlook. Whereas maybe today be like, maybe today Montaigne would be like, no, he, he was a diehard. He was always, he always subscribed to this, but he just played the part. You can imagine like opposite thinking. Anyway, I'm trying to put this in perspective and piggyback off of what you're saying, Catherine, because I know Coop is kind of poo-pooing uh you know you i know, can speak uh, to this though all right speak to it well I, I just want to say that in my sort of marxish marx-ish orientation that you know i do recognize i suppose that the time period obviously you know as compared to monarchism liberalism does seem like a progressive right. step in the historical development of society or civilization or government etc whatever however you want to phrase that so I will yield on this point. <laughs> okay. Okay. But cool. Cool. At, you know, just like coming at it, it was like von Mises Institute that just makes my skin crawl. So, but I'll, no. I'll, I'll shut up and, and listen now. <laughs> now you're good. I mean, th there was another thing that Catherine said, and I'll shoot this back to you where you likened him to Machiavelli, where it's what's interesting though, is that Machiavelli is trying to counsel the ruler, the prince on how to best mobilize certain ways of ruling in order to make the populace acquiesce to their you know their manner of 
you know, governing, whereas Wedi is is kind of doing the opposite to a certain extent, right? Is trying to talk to the populace and say, like, hey, just revoke your consent and the prince will fall like a colossus whose pedestal is crumbled. Completely. And I think this is, again, just so indicative of the 16th century backstage of history moment that so many authors are saying, wait, how is power really constructed? And it's Machiavelli who's saying, I can tell you how it's constructed and you can use it to your advantage. Right. And that's so interesting, right? Because for Machiavelli, it's both, you know, fear and love, mostly fear. But there's this interesting moment as well, which are, is reflected in both Machiavelli's text and the Boasies and Luther's as well, which is really this transition between that we're starting to see in Europe between saying that a ruler is simply the ruler through pure contingency, right? Because they're born as such, because they have a divine right, to saying actually the people have something to do with this, right? And what is where is that coming from? And it definitely is this, you know, foreground to liberalism. But also, I get so many nice little anarchist moments in this text too, right? Why aren't we caring about the actual whole of the people, right? Why are we so cutthroat? with each other? Why are we exploiting each other, manipulating each other, stepping on each other in order to get closer to power? And so it cuts, it cuts in these ways. But, you know, my little thesis when I was really thinking about this was that so much like in the sense that today, really in the 20th century onward, we have such a nice rise of like the imaginary of the image, right? The imago. (laughs) In this moment in time in the 16th century, you're really seeing this rise of the symbolic of contracts, of the the printing press, of literature, of people just becoming literate, first of all. But even, I mean, this text is about why are you voluntarily submitting to servitude? So this is very like contractual undertone. Same in Montaigne's essay on friendship. I mean, his whole point in this essay is that friendship is a voluntary contract. Yeah. And so there's this interesting, I think, lens that everything is coming under in the sense of like, what does it mean I mean, what like what is this uh, this uh, saturation of the symbolic really doing for people? And even in this essay as well, there's this. I mean, Tay, I think you had mentioned previously, right? That there's this interesting moment where the Boise is talking about equality, right? Like everyone is equal, and this is what could be more symbolic than that, right? right. I mean, we're obviously not literally equal, right? We are not the same person, but we are equal symbolically, and so this is when we start to get those types of texts. So, that's my little thesis on like the rise of the symbolic versus like the rise of the imaginary today. Obviously, both always exist, but we have different like inflection points with these like looking registers, if you will. I like it. I, I like it. And I would just add to that that what's interesting is how kind of like Spinoza, we think about this time period, this early modern or whatever you want to call it. Uh, obviously, the sort of you could say the Renaissance, but his discourse what his discourse is sort of more or less famous for its circulation among private ownership right so that's kind of how it keeps its life we talked about it being republished in these different revolutionary eras but like so many different texts we think about of these authors in that period it's sort of energy and and following from this private circulation. And I think that that's kind of interesting to think about in terms of how it wasn't published for another, at least in full, well, 10 years after his early death. So that adds a little bit, I think, to your point about 
this realm of symbolic, although on the private side, but it's it gains this like frenetic energy uh, amongst people that are like, like, hey, you know, you got you got to see this shit, right? Like uh, there's there's something interesting about that rather than it being published in full while he was alive. You bring up Spinoza. I mean, we have to bring up the repeated, you know, Deleuze and Guattari repeat mm-hmm. this question as well from Spinoza and, and Reich. Why do men voluntarily serve, et cetera? I mean, I think that's interesting to make that connection there. Cap pointed out earlier where for Bledi, the main target is not, it, there's a kind of nature culture, like binary. If yeah, we yeah. want to like deconstruct that, obviously you brought up Derrida too, as well, Cat, so we could go there. Um, but I won't try to be so uh, sophisticated. <laughs> I'll just say that, you know, for, for Bledi, the one thing that he keeps constantly like going back to is, is custom or habit which is why I think Murray Rothbard, the great libertarian <laughs> introducer to this text, he keeps he keeps bringing up Hume in making some some connections uh, because Hume will come to some similar conclusions about, for example, consent and these other things about how government tyranny functions. But I'll simplify by just saying what he keeps coming back to custom as the target, let's say, to critique for why as coop mentioned you know people kind of voluntarily submit to power to authority yada yada you know i'm paraphrasing or maybe even reading more into it but it feels like he's saying servitude is un is against reason right yeah and so this is where i mean obviously this is predating kant so i think that makes sense that Kant would come in and say, okay, critique of pure reason and reason being insufficient and there being some, you know, something else going on that we're not aware of that creates this sort of desire to serve. Yeah, he does kind of seem to make it about desire, although he will add in that possibly deception can play a part. So he's not fully Reichian in that sense, but he has historical backdrops. uh, You know, he's, he's, he's pulling from antiquity where, right. um, Gosh, what was his name? Y'all, y'all, y'all may know, because I I don't have my hard copy, but he mentions one sort of Greek tyrant that was able to gain tyranny status due to like manipulation and, you know, deception. Yeah. But for the like most Descartes part, evil demon sort of vibe. I mean, it, maybe that's, that's, I didn't even think about that, but that's, uh, but for the most part, he seems to kind of like, like you're saying point to desire as the main, or he even says it's almost um, a malfunctioning of desire because he points to indifference as one of the ways in which people's submit. But Kat, you seem like you had something to, to jump in with. Oh, no, there's so many, there's so many interesting pieces here, right? Because there's first the, the sort of fantasy of like natural freedom, right? That, uh, of course, it's going to predate, you know, Rousseau, et cetera, et cetera, you know, our, six, our 17th century writers that, oh, in like man's natural state, he is free, right? Why, why does he choose enslavement? And I mean, it's interesting. It's like a foregrounding to later thinkers. And it, it's not until, I mean, until we get to, you know, even later thinkers. And I'm thinking like, over the course of Hegel that, uh, you know, spirit is denaturalized for Hegel, right? Spirit is what breaks away from nature. And so like any movement of freedom would be 
actually breaking away from like some sort of like natural um, like disposition. But I mean, we could definitely talk about the, the sort of like false origin story of like a natural freedom, right? You brought up Derrida, yeah. you brought up Guattari, but this was certainly like a, a product of its time in that way, right? But then indifference is, I think, one of the more interesting things that he does touch upon, right? Because I think he's really cracking into something here when it comes to like the impasse of desire. Do we even really desire to be free? Is this interesting question? Are we just stuck in thinking indifferently? And this makes me think about Frank Ruta's work on indifference and freedom, right? That when we're too saturated with freedom, we just become completely indifferent to our choices around us, right? And so I think this is part of the the impasse here in the you know, I was looking through a couple texts uh, and in uh, Zizek's Most Sublime Hysteric, he actually talks about Le Boissy and he brings up Le Boissy as uh, pointing to the impasse of freedom, that freedom can only be free if it really desires itself, but, but this is immediately an impasse, right? And so there is like this construction of like the bar other for Zizek that oh, the other never gives me what I want, right? It's, you know, the other's too capricious. This ruler could be a good ruler, but he chooses not to be. And that this is just sort of a placeholder for like, the barred desire of freedom. I don't know what oh, you guys think about that. I just wanted to bring up really briefly someone like Peter Kropotkin, who sort of looks to, na- because of this discussion of nature, I suppose, versus nurture in terms of exploitation, I guess the position of the slave, the naturalism of capitalist exploitation, etc. Because what Kropotkin as a sort of naturalist does is he sees cooperation in nature and draws a, you know, he uses reason to draw this link. Okay, well, we see animals cooperating in nature. So this sort of, there's sort of a falseness to this idea that servitude is a natural phenomenon necessarily just to problematize that. But so, I, I mean, I think that goes to like the sort of liberal aspect of, of anarchism and Kropotkin. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about what, when Catherine brought up Rousseau, because I'm thinking about Zizek's sublime object of ideology and he brings up Rousseau in that text and I think he uh, quotes from, um, I think the title is something like Rousseau judged by Jean-Jacques, something like this. Like it's one, it's a later text that isn't as discussed, but Rousseau kind of has, he performs a kind of split subjectivity where he's, uh, you know, laying out, you know, if you would have met this man, this author in the wild, you know, you, you might've heard him say this and he's kind of, He's addressing all of these um, critics, if you will, of the time that are kind of impugning him based on earlier writing. And it's a very fascinating kind of thing. And I'll I'll leave out the larger context, but it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what Montaigne is trying to do for his friend, for his friend, Buddy, right? He's trying to, at the very beginning of, of his essay on friendship, you know, he kind of says, like, if we had, it, you know, it almost seems to be saying, like, if what he had lived long enough and had, if we were able to see what he could have published, then I think what, what Montaigne says something almost, I mean, it's, it's kind of beautiful where he's like, if uh, we had his words, our age would rival that of antiquity, something like this, right? Like, there's, there's something 
magnificent in uh even if he's as i said trying to say like no my boy was conservative to the core but there's something <laughs> still beautiful in that simplicity and i know that um cat we've talked about some of the, some of the other things that montaigne said about his boy you, you you have that that quote which i'll let you bring up in your own context but i, I think it's 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 really mag it's really fantastic to be like well if 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 my guy survived him and, and actually buddy was a, a a couple of years older than montaigne maybe two or three so um mm. i can imagine that that early death because montaigne lived obviously a longer life enough to you know decry the publication by the protestants of um buddy's work and i think montaigne was going to publish the discourse himself you know alongside his essays so he kind of had a gripe but you know saying that um you know if buddy had survived and we had his uh his his mature thinking that our age right the age of of montaigne's uh when he's writing would rival that of antiquity i i think about that and i'm like damn that's that's a succinct way to like really lay thick the the praise to uh to someone that that you love they certainly loved each other and i mean it's been speculated if it was more than just a friendship but, right because it is a romantic thing to say to somebody when asked you know why were you friends and he says because it was he because it was i i mean it's just because of that right you know, I was told once that there are two streets in Paris, one named after Montaigne and one named after Le Boissy that intersect. And I thought that was so sweet. But I looked it up yesterday. I went through the map of Paris. They run parallel to each other in the 8th in the ATM, but I don't think they actually intersect. <laughs> but um, there are two streets right next to each other at the very least named after these two fellows. So. Somebody in Parliament needs to make, make sure that they have <laughs> a like the curved universe, maybe an in infinity they can they can meet. Right, they can. Right, uh, right. They need to like rename <laughs> some little side street in some sense, but at the very least, their two lives certainly ran parallel to each other. And uh, yeah, it's interesting, right, that Montaigne was just left with this text of Le Boissy, and this is all we really have of his work. And he wrote some poems. Besides this, this is by far the most well-known piece. And he has to defend his friend when it's instrumentalized by the Huguenots, and you know, used to you know really you know instigate this large revolt this war in, in france which uh, i mean based on the policy's life it seems like it's not something he would have wanted right he didn't want the, the Huguenots to rise up he was conservative ultimately but, but yeah what a bromance they had though i didn't realize is this the full title um this is the full title yeah so so the, so the subtitle is the contrun the yeah, yeah so the full title is the discord in the in English, right, the, the title that we all know is Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, but we often drop the second part of the title, which is so compelling, the contra one, or if I'm being really liberal in my translation, I mean, is this, are we saying the not one? And of course, we know there's so much, you know, discussion of the not one today with the Lacan, of course, you know, Badu's dispute of like that the one even exists. And so, I mean, this is what to me incredibly compelling, right? That this text is saying, I mean, this text is saying that the one doesn't exist, really, right? Like the ruler doesn't exist. He's something that we have created. And he's ultimately, again, like a true hysteric, 
um, Boise is saying, the ruler is just this impotent guy, right? He doesn't even have like virility. But in this way, right, we are really seeing it. I mean, in so many words, right, that the ruler is this quilting point, this empty signifier. Or as Hegel says, uh, when Hegel very notoriously justifies monarchy, right? Hegel says we need a ruler to dot the I's and cross the T's. Right. An empty placeholder just to like basically quilt things together. Make sure the trains run. Exactly. Exactly. But not even make sure, right? Just kind of sit there, (laughs) you know, and just wear the crown, right? And so, yeah, this, uh, I think that what we see in this text is like all of the hysterics questions and we're kind of left to fill in the blanks of it to say, yeah, the ruler isn't, he doesn't add up to much. But in so many ways, this text is really asking those questions and prompting us without giving us too many answers as well. One of the things that stood out to me and especially in part three of the text, because he does kind of break it up into three parts, even if, they could all be amalgamated because part three, it's funny. It starts off. It's like, Hey, I've lost the thread of the text. Like let's (laughs) let's get back to it. So he does have that soul of the poet that can, you know, uh, sort of go on, but there's one thing that stood out to me was how he makes clear that it's not just the one though, to a certain extent, right. Mm -hmm. Where it's really for him, those henchmen that carry out the one's orders are in a certain sense to him to be pitied more than those against whom they wreak the the havoc of subjugation. So it's kind of interesting where, you know, again, to bring up Antietipus or Deleuze Guattari, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly where they say this, but how the tyrant is is sort of the first one to fall under their own subjugation in a, in a kind of paradoxical way yeah there is this kind of sense in which for Boetti, these two are other colossuses maybe on smaller pedestals but they also need to have their authority revoked these henchmen because they're they're sort of they are exulting in the fact that even if they suffer the same kind of caprice and whimsical nature of the tyrant they get to wreck it on everyone else and that's so they get to play the cop right you know uh anyway coop oh so i was just gonna say this is elon and his blue check mob of dipshits and Mm -hmm. flunkies even though he's shown himself to be completely naked etc but anyways yeah the i think it's in part three as well that the kind of gives us like the pyramid scheme <laughs> yeah yeah of the ruler he's like it's not just the one he has six uh, um, advisors and they have 60 you know people that work for them and each of those men have 600 and each of those men have 6,000 that work for him and uh, you know maybe it's a stretch right but this does really remind me of like an inconsistent multiplicity in bad too right that like the one is not just a one right like that there isn't really you know multiple about the creation of the one and it might present as one but in reality the ruler is not simply the one ruler that we're all uh serving to that has you know all all encompassing power and since you brought up badu i will just say shout out to deleuze because as far as badu tries to make him a thinker of the one 
the Liz is always n minus one, right? Where you're subtracting mm -hmm. the one of unity. So I'm just gonna say, Badu, you know, step up your game. You can you can do better. <laughs> or like in a Lacanian register, right? Like an n plus one, right? Like there's always like add one more, add one more. <laughs> like if we're thinking about the ruler here in the sense, right? There's always another person that that is that is here. This is something else I wanted to, to talk about was just the, again, like in this hysterics discourse that there is this really interesting contrast between the ruler who is totally impotent, right? I think it, he's, oh gosh, it's this great little French bit that in French is so great. Um, he says, he's just this little omelette. This little man. This an little omelette. He's an, an omelette. He's, a, he's an omelette. I love it. I love this it. little omelette. Um, and he can't even satisfy a femlet. He can't even satisfy a little woman. Okay. 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 So, so we're talking about the the little the little H and the little F, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Objet petit F. There wasn't a ton of it, but there was there was some, you know, genderizing language in the the discourse. I I didn't catch that obviously due to the translation, but there's. He talks about how the tyrant kind of effeminizes the populace. Mm -hmm. um, and prostitution uh, yeah in a well, sense right i mean perhaps i'm thinking of well one of the places and i could be mixing them up so y'all have to help me but like he's talking about and and i think i am mixing it up but one of the things he says and i, I just link it in my head because he uses that this notion of effeminization kind of in the beginning and in the middle but towards yeah. the end he, he also kind of mentions that the tyrant sort of deprives the people of their will. And so, you know, it's who's going to be better at war. I know he uses that a couple of times. Um, who's right. going to be better at war? Those who are fighting to save their freedom, like the Greeks, right? Who's he, who he's kind of heroizing or, you know, these, these people that sort of have lost and never seen the light of liberty, blah, blah, blah. But I know that there was, there was at least two places where I, I noticed where he's like talking about the tyrant effeminizing the populace. And I will be fair, you know, that's not so over the top for a 16th century discourse, but we could talk a little bit about that since, you know, Kat, you kind of opened up that, that can, that can of, uh, yeah. It's an interesting intention, right? Because he says that it's like on the third page of the text that too frequently the same little man is the most cowardly and effeminate in the nation, a stranger to the powder of battle and hesitant on the sands of the tournament, not only without energy to direct men by force, but with hardly enough virility to bed with a common woman. There's both this like hysterics discourse of like, oh, you're not the real father, right? Like you really have no virility. But then later on he'll say, and yet, why are we, why are we the people so impotent that we give away our daughters to be bedded by the ruler? Right. And so there's this like robbing of my jouissance happening at the same time. I mean, it's uh, again, it, to me, this is just like one of the strongest hysterics discourse, right? Like not only is the emperor not wearing any clothes, he's naked under his clothes, <laughs> right? Have you all seen, and I've, I've actually, actually shared a meme with Coop the other day. Uh, have y'all seen the, uh, the Disney movie, um, the emperor's new groove? Oh, yeah, I haven't I seen that. it actually. So, it's so funny. The emperor 
uh, Coop is played by David Spade and he kind of is able to, yeah, yeah, he's able to like play up that. I think the hysteric part, but also the, if you want the effeminate part, right. Where Mm -hmm. his power is kind of revealed to be just in his own manner of speaking shown in a certain way to undermine itself, if you will. Obviously, there's a kind of redemption story in the end, but there's very much I was getting Emperor's New Groove vibes. And partly because Kat said to me, the Emperor has no clothes. Obviously, that's that's the story everyone kind of offhand knows. But there's there's a retelling of the story and it almost turns the Emperor has no clothes story into a redemption arc in the Disney movie because it's Disney. Right. And uh, also one thing that's interesting about that movie, Ember's uh, New Groove, just to be fair, is um, it's not a traditional kind of musical in the sense of which a lot of the classic Disney movies are. So it's it's interesting. Uh, anyway, that's that's its own thing. But <laughs> I think the movie ends as well with like him um, with the Emperor becoming in touch with the people. Right. Like this is the modern story, right? That's, That's right. Often, like arbitrarily, he was born to power. He was the prince, like, despite contingency of birth. But he has to like earn the respect of the common man. The, right. With the, I forget the, the guy's name, but um, his, his friend, his companion, his companion. Right. He was going to, I mean, at the start of the movie, he was going to just like demolish, as you said, played by John Goodman. I, I forget the character's mm. name, but he was going to demolish this uh, peasant's hometown to make a, a resort or something right you know at the end of the movie he like finds a place that's not gonna depopulate anyone and you know he's he's still gonna get the resort though right, right. so yeah. that's that's the interesting thing he's still gonna like you know he's still gonna have his <clears throat> his cake but he's not going to uh deprive others of their home so you know eh. It's a great movie, though. Really, really entertaining to be that one. But again, yeah, I mean, this is like, I think this text just shows us that cusp of modernity, right? That we are having to look to, like, what do the people want? <laughs> yeah. And this is, the, you know, again, I think it's great for, for the anarchists as well, in the sense, right? Like, what do the people, like, how do we band together to overcome authority and actually work for ourselves, in a sense? But yeah, it's, it's this early modern piece in that way. This discussion of the one and the multiple, and I suppose this progression of history to liberal, you know, whatever liberal democracy, marketization, et cetera. And I think it's interesting that the one becomes the multiple in the marketplace. The marketplace becomes the arbiter of authority. There's no one sovereign person. We are all sort of responsible in this democratic way through our desire that is expressed contingently through the marketplace. And in that way, power becomes – it does become more you know, directly a sort of demon in the way that it's sort of immaterial. It's not sort of, uh, I suppose, capitulated within the figure of the monarch, which makes things a lot more difficult, right? Because where, do, where does the source of power – it's more illusory than just, oh, we deposed the king, right? And then we place someone up upon the pedestal, you know, that aside, right? I think – this idea of the marketplace becoming and it also goes along with sort of calvinist theology or theosophy of of like idle hands being the devil's workshop but also predestination only 
a specific set of people are to be saved, right? There's only salvation available to a predetermined set of individuals that that sort of dominate the marketplace, right? So if you're in the position of the slave or being exploited by virtue of the marketplace, then it is natural and it is predetermined and it is goes back to God's sort of authority or knowledge of eternity that robs us of our sort of agency. And yet guarantees our agency too, right? Like that quilting point of the one. I mean, we're really seeing the movement from like a mercantilist system where the state still maintains, you know, monopolistic control to, I mean, later on, I think what you're talking about, Cooper, and like the invisible hand, right? Like that's the empty one that is, you know, giving uh, significance and meaning and tying the whole system together, right? It's like not just that we're in a contingent, totally random marketplace, but that, oh, there is some higher, you know, being that is a guaranteeing consistency. But to the slave question as well, I think this is really one of the central questions that struck me in this text is, are we just voluntarily submitting to authority without putting up any type of fight? Or in like a really Hegelian sense, right? Like, are we losing some sort of battle of dominance? And that's that's what I had to really think about in reading this text. And this is really why I keep coming back to this point on this text is all about the symbolic, right? Is that we actually do enter, enter into a battle with the symbolic and we lose, right? And we need to have this quilting point of like the one or a barred other. And we are, you know, again, we never speak our own language, right? It's always the language of the other. Mm. But I think this text is what's demonstrating that we do go into a battle, we do lose it, but it's not a battle man-to-man, you know, combat in the arena, right? It's it's a battle with, with literally symbolic authority. Yeah, I, I, you know, one thing Coop and, and Kat, just to like dovetail um, how much the activity that Boydy is advocating is what he keeps putting in the terms of non-activity. He's like, I don't want you to go out and do anything crazy. You don't have to go kill the tyrant. You don't have to go murder. Just not act right? Just like take away, just revoke, you know, even though that is an activity to a certain extent, but he keeps putting it in the language. Refusal, of this, yeah. This uh, of non-action, of non-violence, if you will, even if you want to make it more contemporary, non-violent revolution, you know, he keeps putting it in this language of a, of a non, um, that I, I find it interesting to think about in relation to all the points both of you brought up. I can also really quickly get my Dune reference out of the way because there's a quote from God Emperor of Dune. The problem of leadership is inevitably who will play God. Mm. Just to sneak that in there. So that's the one stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Perfect. Anyways. Kat, I, I, I try to bring this up with, um, I forget it was John Rofe or um, maybe it was Sean Bowden. Um, that Alain Badu, right, he has talked about his name as meaning down with the old God. Have you heard of this translation of his name? Like, I know that that's like not strictly literal, but I, I've seen this in passing. And and whoever I brought it up with was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But, <laughs> but if you kind of think about it, right yeah. there is you can kind of see it a la ba 
yeah do right like down with god down with the old god um i think he threw in old just for fun obviously that's not literal i but, can um, see this yeah i mean at least like very much yeah do right for god yeah i mean that's an interesting one but it's i think the most kind of telling part of that is that the trace of god is still there for badu especially when you read right right like god is like, even though he says you know god does not exist right and he criticizes Hegel for being too christian i mean oh my goodness right like badu's text on saint paul right is like yeah yeah and that's so much of us reading is like very like there's so many christian undertones to his readings um so even right. if he's reinventing god let's say i mean like the trace persists <laughs> in badu's readings i think that's why alenka has is there a fifth um truth procedure right mm. but she 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 writes specifically about religion as this kind of uh truth procedure that's that's suppressed in Badu's texts um but you're right specifically about um the text on saint paul you know and you you um shared brazier's re recent essay you know brazier translated that text but it's kind of funny you know but was like like, hey, I'm not a Christian, so I don't believe in all this fucking afterlife shit. But let's give St. Paul his due and, you know, think of him as founding this universalism where everyone can share in this this new, this true procedure. And so I think Alenka uh, Zupan, she's pretty on the money when she's like, well, you know, maybe there is a fifth truth procedure. Maybe religion is kind of this yeah. underwritten thing. Oh, 100%. I mean, Alenka, I think, is always right, <laughs> more or less, right? But no, certainly. And even just seeing like this, like corollary truth procedure of Martin Luther, like we've been talking about, right? Him saying, wait a minute, we don't need enough bureaucratic intermediary to like access right. the truth, right? Like us people can just do it on our own, right? Like this kind of democratic movement that Luther's advocating for. I mean, certainly like strikes one as a truth procedure. You know, I think Badu would, would not like religion as a truth procedure if you think of like his little book on ethics which i'm going to read with Coop at some point because it's short sweet and to the point but he might you know rebut that hey you know religion already pre-selects like a people for fulfilling the event when in fact the event is for all so to speak but you know at the same time he uses as i just mentioned saint paul to point towards a universalism so it's it's not so easy and there's there's obviously but i guess if we can tie it back to the text i could have sworn that there's a moment where Bwedi is mentioning the ills that can denature humans <laughs> to sort of buy into their own i didn't sell out i bought in right they buy into their own servitude and i could have sworn he at least at one time decries religion's role in this now obviously maybe he he doesn't want to go too far in this realm because you know you don't want to bite the hand that's feeding you he's already studying for law and 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 to become one of you know become a magistrate as he did at an early age but Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I could have sworn he 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 may have pointed to um, religion as one of the opiates that kind of you know is a part of the customary way of being, the conventional way of being that that leads people to indifference and whatnot. 
he certainly like makes this nice fun list of like the opiates of the, the masses, right? Bread and circus, etc. I'm thinking of like the very closing line of the whole text where he says that there is nothing so contrary to a generous and loving God as tyranny. In this sense, right, he's like coming down on like, no, God does not smile upon the tyrant, right? I mean, he is going to be backing that, that piece up. Um, but I mean, certainly, right, it's uh, hard to not see in the 16th century how many people are criticizing the church for acting right. like a tyrant to, to a tyrant, like a tyrant to, yeah, I'm not sure. In, I mean, I believe you in this text, he does say that somewhere. And he brings up Saul, right, who was mm-hmm. anointed. Yeah king of the israelites you know for so long god is kind of telling them you know don't appoint a one i am that i am i am i am the one right don't appoint a one and we were just talking about paul who obviously was whose namesake comes from this king in the old testament right saul so it's kind of interesting that he he kind of lists out how it's natural to desire freedom, liberty, look at the beasts, look at the animals, right? And we see this today too, when we think about animals living in captivity, some against their will and for bad purposes, obviously, I mean, but also some in order to uh, prevent extinction. And so there is some supposedly philanthropic mindset, but you know, he's like, look at, look at animals. You, you put them in captivity and you could see them wasting away. And he kind of mentions that it's, you know, again, this is the nat- this is the nature nurture thing that the coop brought up, but you know, he's like the one exception he can think of because he's usually bringing up the Greeks. Right. But he turns to the Israelites for a moment and is like, but they appointed Saul. Yeah. And, and that wasn't a good thing for them uh, because for so long, at least if my memory of reading the old Testament serves, it's this constant refrain of not appointing a one. If we want to think about the contra un that we talked about just a minute ago. Yeah, completely. And we mentioned this before, but yeah, it really is this this fantasy of like man as free in nature, like the beast prior to, um, right. Like the social contract and Hobbes and, you know, all these other writers when I write about that same fantasy. I think this is the part where I, I feel like it is a product of its time, and I, I would not like agree with this reading personally. Right? That um, again, you know, I I really I, I vibe with Hegel on this. Right? That um, you know, spirit is is denatured or denaturalized, and to have these like moments of like freedom are really to break with what is quote unquote you know natural, or at least that we're like habituated to. Right? And the, to bring back a do back into it, right? Like the subject is rare, right? And to like right. uh, the truth event, to like, you know, join the, the cyber world of Spartacus, right? Like this is a rare moment and this is not the easy thing to do, right? This uh, requires the courage, requires true freedom, right? Really breaking with the, what is already established. And, but yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a different sort of discourse, right? Of looking at what is social and saying, this is unnatural, right? Like let us, you know, imagine an equality amongst us in like this like natural sense. But yeah, this is part of its time for me in that way. So you brought up Hegel. So I have to point to Coop. Coop, you had a pretty humorous post about the new Christopher Nolan movie that's it's Christopher Nolan, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. That's announced the, Na- the Napoleon. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's, you no, had- it's uh it's Ridley Scott. 
Ridley Scott. Starring I, don't know. Scott I, I, don't know. I, I have no idea why I just threw Christopher <laughs> Nolan in there. Um, maybe uh, because Oppenheimer is about to come out. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. That's its own. Uh... Okay. I'm, I'm cringing. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. My, my wife asked me the other day. She's like, if we went to the theater, would you rather see Barbie or Oppenheimer? And I was like, oh, I totally want to see Barbie because <laughs> I know I can like chill the fuck out. I can like take an edible and just like that's what you think man it's a very me- it's a very meta all right film. right what, don't don't ruin don't ruin don't ruin the fantasy uh but more optimistic to me well you know hey they have a shared history right like they both kind of debut in the uh, 50s yeah. well no the mid 40s mm. um, right yeah sorry but no 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 i was gonna say um you know coop you had the humorous post basically intimating that hegel soy facing about napoleon right like so i want to maybe i'm not trying to put you on the spot cat but (laughs) would 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 not you know if one of the republication dates of the discourse on voluntary servitude is contra napoleon the third at the very Mm -hmm. least yeah i mean like i just kind of have to think about how hegel you know kind of kind of coomed a little bit for <laughs> for napoleon so you know i wonder about how easily he would i guess advocate for for Boydie's, uh point of view here i mean is there not a way where he'd be like yes well but dialectically maybe there should be someone in charge right you know i don't know I and so. lacan lacan could go in that that category too by the way you know I think so, right? I think so. I, I think at least the the oft quoted "We need the monarch to dot the i's and cross the t's" so shows us that he sees the monarch as empty but necessary, right? And this is the Lacanian adage as well, right? You're always looking for a new master. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both the thinkers in this way, you know, admit that there is a a barred other, right? You know, right. like the monster is empty, right? Like when we get into this Hegelian battle between bondsman and and servant, right? The bondsman ultimately doesn't exist, right? Like that's really is an empty placeholder yeah. that is necessary nonetheless, right? Like this is the symbolic writ large, right? The other does not exist, and yet we need this sort of placeholder for them. So yeah, I do think that this is yeah really in contrast with Badu, right? Like here we see a, a big difference, but Badu himself also laments the institutionalization after the revolution, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Very, work like theory of the subject right he's really grappling with how do we create institutions out of like the beauty and purity if you will like the revolutionary fervor where everyone genuinely is equal how do we then do the thing right and i think bloody i i will say he's not he's not out of this category too because we as we already spoke about his conservatism you know quote unquote late in life you know if you want i mean even though he only lives at 32 but what he would I think be subject to the same criticism I just launched where he's, he's simping for a monarch. And one of the only like nice things he kind of says about monarchs is like, well, France uses these uh, foreign troops in order to save the citizens. Right. Like he's already even kind of like making excuses for his own country's, you know, mode of ruling. 
yeah, he loves France. I mean, the text is like, I'm not talking about France, just so we all know, right? I'm talking about those other people. Who doesn't name? It leaves one to wonder, you know, which, uh, you know, political organizations is he talking about of the 16th century? I mean, one could like, you know, postulate different groups in different countries. But yeah, yeah. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> I'll come back to it. No, no, no. I just meant to say that Weddy too, along with Hegel, Lacan, like, they all, I think, fall into what you were saying about like, even if he kind of brings up monarchy and even if he's like, but normally the language he's using is against tyrants, not against some sort of placeholder. If we can use, if I can, I'll use my own language in terms of the empty holder of like you were saying with Hegel and Lacan. But Kuba sounds like you had something. Yeah, I like this I, this notion of the bondsman not existing. This is where I, I can be heretical with regard to Marx and Nietzsche in the sense that it's about the proletariat's self-recognition of itself as the creator of the world, so to speak. And the sort of Nietzsche's disdain for the like plebs or whatever would be that they fall into, and I can even modernize this with like the plebs fall into the slave morality of capitalism that like without recognizing that they really control and direct the world creation themselves. And it's about whenever the slave recognizes within its, the mastery within itself, then it elevates itself to the sort of figure that I, the Ubermenschian figure that does grasp hold of the world and self-recognize that it is in, it creates the world and can therefore develop, you know, whatever, the end of history. I don't know. I'm going to say, and Kat, you probably have something better to say, but I'm going to say like the fact that you're, you know, firing off some Nietzsche shit. Uh, we got to do some more Nietzsche in the future because I don't know where you came up with that, but props to you. And I like it. I like this idea because obviously the proletariat as the subject of history, right. You know, you're, you're going with that. And, uh, I didn't have shit to add. So yeah, just... well, I mean, it's like literally the proletariat creates the fucking world, like literally with our hands and our minds, like we create the world ourselves and we just don't recognize it. And we take on the slave morality that someone else directs the it's the e supposed elite. It's the supposed, you know, the Elon right. Musk of the world that drive history when it's it's not. That's a false. The, the, There's something the, false about that. Yeah. The superego, right, is is kind of maybe too what we could talk about as this this empty place that that i'm just stealing from catherine here i'm a thought thief uh, <laughs> as Guattari says I'm, I'm an idea thief um but yeah there's there's something there i i i, I mean, and also obviously i guess uh and i'll i'll throw it to catherine if you had something but basically i i, I think about um totem and taboo right where freud is thinking about this myth of the primordial father of the horde who's hoarding all the jouissance, all the women. Mm -hmm. And Weddy's like, you know, actually he's too effeminate to, to bed them. Right. Like he's, he actually can't get it up. You know, you don't even have to kill him. You can kill him with kindness or you can kill him with a, you can slay him with a, um, some hard truths since he can't get hard, so to speak. Right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I think this is precisely the takeaway of the text, right? That the, like, the master is empty. There is no master, right? We just have this placeholder. And even, like, in Ray's, uh, Ray Brassier's text that he just uh, published this last week uh, in, in July, 
I mean, his conclusion, right, is that the proletariat needs to destroy the conditions that it itself is creating, right? It needs to negate itself so radically that it is no longer a proletariat. It is no longer in this like enslaved position. And I, I, I love that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a great conclusion. I mean, yeah, Ray, Ray gets it right completely for me. But this is also like to bring it back to Lacan. Sorry, you know, like this is the end of the hysterics discourse. Lacan says you need to hystericize the patient. Why? Because the, the patient will then say, who's in charge? Who's really right. who, like, there's no one here. The emperor really is naked. And the conclusion for the hysteric is that, oh, wait, the subject's supposed to know, the analyst doesn't know. Or in this case, right. the subject's supposed to rule, doesn't rule. Right. And like this is the this is the end of analysis, right? Is that we realize, oh, wait, actually. And I think this is like the productive piece of this text, right? Is that when you realize that there isn't a one, right? Contra one, but the one does not exist. It actually becomes a really productive antagonism, right? Like a productive empty placeholder where we say, oh, there is no master signifier. So now what, right? Like how do we mobilize that empty place or how do right. we mobilize our own antagonism, our own like internal antagonism individually, socially? in order to move past these like tyrannical, you know, states and, you know, actually, you know, in, in Ray's words, right, destroy the conditions that have made us the proletariat and, you know, seek something else out here. So I know that Ray's not here to like speak for himself, but when we had him on, what, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, he took a little bit of a stab, I a stab, a little bit of a backlash against anti-Oedipus specifically where they talk about how there's one class it's the bourgeoisie they talk about the proletariat as the whore class right they I don't, I don't know not whore as in prostitute but you know uh the out class and he kind of like took a stab at them but I feel like dialectically he came to the same conclusion with his recent publication so maybe there's a kind of distinction without a difference just calling you out Ray you can, uh, we can we can duel in the streets who dialects dialectics the dialecticians <laughs> or something like that i don't know the right. the dialectee has become the dialectician yeah um i think this is really like just like i guess on a side note for ray right like his work at critiquing the dialectic is so interesting right and like i'm a hegelian out here you know but when ray really in heel unbound when he talks about ultimately we're left with the a non-relation between two terms and we can't like bridge this gap, but, right? I mean, I think that's what he's getting at in this article as well, right? Is if when we just affirm things, we just negate things, we're really not, like there's ultimately a rift that we can't cross, right? And this is interesting, right? Like that, like even like a dialectic like there is something incomplete at play, but to me this, uh, you know, I reconcile this by saying like, yeah, there is an incompletion, there isn't a one, right? And yet like dialectically we move with this antagonism, hopefully like in a productive political way, right? That's a I like reconciliation here to tie everything together. Yeah, shout out to Ray's work is, uh, yeah, I think it's, he makes some great critiques in this way. Yeah, I love it. And um, I'm going to be a naive, I'm going to parrot uh, Deleuze's naivete, as Lara well likes to say, and and champion affirmationism uh, until I die, because that's that's how I keep Coop grounded. He's the one that negates me, and I have to affirm him. So, like, we play off each other. But then when I'm down and I'm I'm feel I'm negating myself, Coop comes and and affirms me. So, I, now I'm thinking about Montaigne's uh, essay on friendship, right, where he says. I mean, some of the most beautiful things about Buddy that, you know, does make me 
kind of envy his mastery of of prose right where he's just he says and it's funny because montaigne i'm reading even like the first paragraph you're like this is hyperbole but it just comes across so heartfelt that you have to give it to him you know what i mean like he's where he's he's talking about how like i've seen shit in his unpublished documents that like a thinker like this comes across once in three centuries and you're just like man that's that's over the top but i feel it i believe you no their friendship is one to be admired certainly right i mean what was the other thing he says right that it's you know i live such a debt in the fact that i outlived the voice <laughs> just like gosh it's beautiful beautiful romance here <laughs> We haven't really talked about that essay as much, but it's fine because it's just kind of like the cherry on top. Mm -hmm, I really love how you've hit home the hysteric discourse. I think we've covered that. I mean, obviously, you can kind of sum up Buddy's discourse in a couple of sentences. No offense to him. I mean, like he's, you know, is there a couple of other points we want to to get to? I I know um, we don't want to keep you past one is that correct so we've got like 10 15 minutes i feel like we've talked about the main points here but the voice i mean i think again like the historic moment of it is so compelling right that we get this this real questioning of power at this moment in time in europe when there is you know literature spreading around and the state is really consolidating its power and expanding its power and uh, Again, I think the historic moment is so interesting. The rise of the symbolic is my little thesis here for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just that it is this like early hysterics discourse that par excellence, right? That leaves us like filling in different blanks. So, but yeah, it's a compelling, it's a compelling piece. And it surprises me that it's not more well known. That has made like splashes in the left, in the right. <laughs> you know, it's it is this interesting intersection of a discourse. What's interesting, it was like a couple months ago maybe only like two maybe it was in may where you kind of asked pretty bluntly you're like hey you know what's what's the text to like turn to yeah and god i mean obviously like a hundred texts came to my head but um for some reason it kind of stuck with me i was like i was thinking of discourse because it's so to the point it's so and also it's written in a way, I mean, even though I think the, the translation that we have, I think it does a decent job, despite the grammatical errors, which I don't put on the translator, which I never want to do because shout out to translators, but it's written in such a way that it's, it doesn't require any philosophical background. Now you're bringing some sophisticated framework, I think with Lacan and Hegel, and I respect the hell out of that. And I fucking love it. But I do think that it's written in such a way that, for example, I think about Deleuze and Guattari talking about anti-Oedipus and how it failed because they wanted it supposedly to be read by seven to 15 year olds or 15 to 20 year olds. They have a couple of places where they say that. Obviously, that is impossible, in my opinion, anti-Oedipus being read by an eight year old. Let's just be fair. But, you know, their intention was to be reaching people at their formative years and i think that Weddy's discourse is not only timeless but can be read at any age there's something about it that can speak to 
any age, any education status, whatever. It doesn't have a kind of, it doesn't have a pretense in that sense, right? Where it's not trying to, like a lot of continental philosophy can be blamed for, it's not trying to kind of wow us with rhetoric or with embellishment or, uh, you know, and you brought up Derrida at the very start. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking of you, Derrida, with your fancy pants deconstruction shit. Obviously, there is, as you said, there's a kind of background to Boetti's discourse that shows its chops, but that's not a part of the, the writing itself, right? Where it's, it's accessible, as I like to say. Yeah, that's exactly the word that comes to my mind, too. It's an incredibly accessible text. It, it's not too long, and it's written, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was 18 when he wrote it, or whatever, he's 20. It's, 20, 22, who cares? That's the same thing, really, kind of right? Bad, right, of age, where you really are, you know, coming of age. I think everyone can relate to this, and you're looking at the world, and you're like, wait, this is really how things work? Right, right, right. And it's, like, crushing as, like, a teenager, as a young adult, right, to see really the inadequacies, I think, of, of people, mm -hmm. like those in charge. And this text just reads it. And there's so many questions in the text, right? Why do we do it like this? Why do we do it like that? Right. It is incredibly relatable to, yeah, a really wide audience. And, and again, you know, it surprises me that we don't read this, you know, for like undergrad courses in political science, right? And even like amongst the French themselves, right? For them, the Boise is just a friend of Montaigne. I bet Montaigne himself, if he would have predicted this, would be the first to, I mean, you can see it in the, in the, in the essay on friendship where he would be the first to say, I'm the friend of, of Woody, right? Like, you know, he might put it that way where he would want to humble himself and kind of recommend his friend. But, you know, I agree with you about that. And I would also say, I would also say that, um, you know what? It is interesting just to think if one of our last exercises before we ask what, how your maybe your dissertation writing is going, or maybe some of your projects that you have in mind, because we do want to hear about that. We always like to end that way. We ask the origin story. We're asking also the future comic, uh, you know, to follow up with. But I'm trying to think if I were the devil's advocate, I'm trying to think maybe like Freud at his most cantankerous might say something like you know well buddy obviously he was he was young and in the throes of of dealing with his uh oedipus complex and obviously this is why he's trying to overthrow the father and you know this this comes from a, a discord in the family but i think on the other hand freud at his most generous which he can be as well would I think for the most part agree, not only for what you said about the hysterics discourse, obviously, right, which Freud kind of pioneered, if you want to say psychoanalysis was pioneered. I mean, Coop was talking about the proletariat. If psychoanalysis was built on the backs of the proletariat, that would be the hysterics that Freud brought into the clinic. But, uh, you know, I, I, I could see Freud kind of agreeing specifically in something like civilization and its discontents it was just a latex for freud where he is more cantankerous he's more ornery and 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 uh he's trying to impose oedipus complex he's trying to impose the stages of development he's trying to secure 
a future for psychoanalysis. I almost said the 14 words there. Right. But like, you know, what I'm saying like he's uh, I can see Freud being on both sides, being the devil and the angel when we're reading uh, this text. I love what you said that the proletariat's the proletariat's discourse would be the discourse of the hysteric, right? Completely, right? Who's in charge? It's definitely not the university discourse, not the analysts, not the master's discourse, right? It is the people saying, you know, questioning the, the structures of power, right? I would like to think Freud would be on board with this as well, right? Particularly for structuring and formalizing, you know, hysteria for, for so many people. But yeah, I don't, yeah, same time, can't say. Catherine, I do want to thank you for joining us, obviously, but we won't, we won't let you have the last word. And um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about if you, I, I'm not going to ask you the question, what's your dissertation about? If you want <laughs> to tell us a little bit about that, you've already given some, some breadcrumbs along the way, how you feel about Hegel. So I'm not going to push you on that. But if you do want to say you know, maybe anything that you're working on, maybe a conference you're attending soon, or yeah. just, you know, something ancillary, but you can also tell us about the dialectic space. So this is your free space to just, you know, tell us a little bit more about what we can expect from you in the future. I have a lot of the smaller projects going on right now. And then of course, my big dissertation, which I'm planning to be done within one year, the long and short of that is that I'm looking at the dialectics of space and the spatiality of the dialectic, reading Hegel's encyclopedia, and I tie in Zizek and Badu into this. And so I'm, I'm trying to rethink space really as the ground of indifference from which we subweight difference, how that works in a logical register, a natural register, in the register of spirit or geist. And yeah, it's really exciting. I actually really love the project, and I think there's a lot, a lot to do with it. Other than that, gosh, I'm working on a piece right now on Badu, which is exciting. It's going to come out in Brest Publica this, uh, this fall. I have a piece also on space coming out in psychoanalytic perspectives, why, why space is, uh, why spatiality is act two is the, is the title of it. I'm going to do a conference in Serbia on <laughs> history and wow. read like a Badu, a Baduzian like reading of history there. But then I think the most, like, if I were to plug something really mainstream and fun, <laughs> I'm writing a column right now called Sex Lives of Philosophers, which is just like an absolute boot. So oh, if, wow. you want, if you want something really fun to read, um, I just take a different philosopher every month and I look at their work and their sex life but, and I sort of draw a line between the two and say, you know, the paradoxes we face in our sex lives are actually very similar to the paradoxes we face in our day-to-day -day lives. <laughs> You can tell I'm a student of the Ljubljana school, right? But like, this is very much I'm very influenced by Alenka here with this with this project. But um, so who's the first? Who's the first philosopher you're writing about? Because I want to hear about Kant. I want to hear <laughs> about yeah. the earth, the the young Chad Kant and the late Virgin Kant. <laughs> like I want to hear about Kant. about Kant because he seems like, as far as I've heard, he got a lot of play when he was young and it seems i swear you know you read the categorical imperative and you're like this man has never touched a woman right so i i want to hear about Kant. that's my uh ask of you at a certain point but you can tell us maybe some of the first few few people you're thinking of yeah the, the very first one that's out right now is on socrates and, and why oh hell yeah that's that's amazing <laughs> oh, the whole premise. alcibiades and uh, <laughs> Exactly, oh, exactly. 
I mean, it's so easy, really. To, to oh, that's it. that's too easy. You you made it easy for yourself. That's cheating. The piece you put of the, itself, right? But the, that's the, game the, genie cheat code. <laughs> shit. The idea is that Socrates like frustrates us, right? He oh, of course, us. yes, yeah. He keeps asking us. He's a tease. He's a tease, man. Oh, so yeah. right? And then we have momentary relief, and we do it all over again, right? Right, right. And so the the premise is that is not like uh, the quest for truth that, you know, is it not similar to, uh, you know, like our sex lives, right? Frustrating, circuitous, and yet there is some relief that keeps us going. Yeah, we're the lovers of wisdom. We never get it, right? Exactly. We never like get wisdom. We just, we just always- you can't hold on uh, to it. Yeah. It, right? I mean, it's a momentary piece. Do you, do you have an idea for who's going to be the, the next uh Next philosophy? is Nietzsche. Nietzsche, <laughs> oh my God. You know- I say this, I just said that shit about Kant, knowing <laughs> Nietzsche's health problems and his solitude. I mean, this man, did he ever touch a woman in his, his, his <laughs> flirtation with uh, Lou Salome? God, I mean, I wonder if he was no nut Nietzsche November <laughs> or if he just wanked it, you know, constantly. I can, oh. I can see it either way, right? Will to power wow. is, uh, no, but, um, that's fascinating. And and where's the the sex column coming out? It's um it's on this publication called Byline Byline. They're like a hyper New York publication that just launched last month. So online though, right? Online, yeah. Byline okay. Byline. Yeah. You um give us um or if you want to let us know in the DMs yeah, about, about that because we want to put we definitely want to put that in um the show notes because I I kind of want to hear about this. In fact. It's funny. Uh, I would say maybe we have you back in the fall and we talk about the sex lives of the philosophers because I'd love that, to. Yeah. That it's sounds a serious, it's a serious project, you know, like it's provocative, not trashy, right? Because right. It's, hey, it's it, I like trashy stuff. So you can be a little <laughs> trashy for me. I I watch um what didn't didn't I like mention the Bachelorette? Yeah. When we started talking. So <laughs> I yeah. my wife puts on reality TV and shit and, and I used to like fucking hate it and like not want to watch it but now i hate watch it and i now I, you've sublimated I, yeah i got i get, off, I get a little bit yeah that's right i get a little <laughs> bit of jouissance out of you know what's funny and, and this is the last thing and by the way i'll, I'll let you finish i'm sorry cat i'm just excited right. because the sex lives of philosophers got me in the bachelor and the bachelorette the one if we're talking about the one the one bachelor bachelorette sends out a card to have a date with one or several of the men or women and it's called a date card and whenever one of these cards shows up one of the contestants i say contestants, one of the, the people they yell uh date card and i always i always yell day day cart i always like yell this out to oh. me and my wife whenever it happens i'm always like day cart you know so maybe Think about I, I would maybe we hear about Descartes' sex life because you know he's always like staring at a ceiling, maybe like seeing like <laughs> geometry. You know he's getting he know he's he's jacking off to to some geometry. Yeah, that res extensum, you know, <laughs> one can only imagine. Yeah, yeah the, the XY coordinates, right? You know, he's he's uh anyway. Um, anything else you want to tell us about that you're working on? I mean, you, you said a lot, and I. I think it sounds fascinating, by the way. Yeah, a lot of going on right now. The sex size of philosophers bit is like the funniest one that I'm working on. It's very mainstream, but it's still clever, which I like it. 
And, uh, and yeah, I know it's, it's like a fun little playground for me to also, you know, refresh on different philosophers and be like, okay, do I really know this thinker? Like, do I really write a piece on them? Right. right. So it's a nice challenge. Um, really, really fun. A cool little New York publication, but yeah, lots <laughs> going on. What's going on right now. I'd be interested to know if Lacan will make his way into this series because he's an anti-philosopher. Right. But I mean, as far as being a prolific lover, I think he's at least that's the rumor that I've heard. There might be some cringe shit in there. (laughs) As you know, as you know, Coop, you've mentioned it, right? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Guattari as well with his like 30 girlfriends showing up to his funeral, (laughs) allegedly. That's the Lacanian yeah, tradition and, or something. And, and his Luz open marriage. Like, yeah, right. The loose was like, just like went home to his wife at night. That's what I read at least. I mean, <laughs> he didn't like to go out. Deleuze didn't like going out. He kind of didn't. He probably didn't like other people like Guattari. Guattari was, think of all the, I mean, Coop's right. Think of all the, the you know, the girls he might have met at all of these different like Marxist meetings and shit that Guattari mm-hmm. was going to, right? He's, you can just imagine so yeah, I guess I guess that's the thing. I'm trying to think who who would have had the raciest. I want to hear about Sartre, right? Obviously, there's all kinds of, but Ooh, that's yeah, too that's easy true. again, right? Maybe you could make your it more difficult for yourself. I I was thinking about someone cringe. Simon <laughs> Crinchley has the book about philosophers' deaths. This is way more interesting, by the way. Um, you know, so that's that's really good. Okay, I'm just now I'm thinking about because now I'm thinking about Diatima. Right when you talk about Socrates and his sex life, Diatima, by the way, is what I call my my wife. That's what she her name is in my phone. She is the one who taught me love. Um, you know, by the way, you know, I will say, you, uh, whoever's listening to this, you can steal that and use that <laughs> for your. Uh, if you're dating someone who's a little bit into philosophy, call them Diatima, and I I promise you, it will not go bad. Picks of the trade and coming to you from Tay. <laughs> so I guess Coop, you can do the outro and um, we can convene. We'd just like to thank Catherine Everett once again for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. We'll see you all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.